Welcome to All Over the Place. We've got with us today the documentary filmmaker, journalist, extraordinaire, uh, truth warrior, John Ziegler. John, thanks for joining us here on All Over the Place. Always good to talk to you, Eric. John was instrumental in getting the truth out there in so many things, but uh, as a uh, Marty, bust my balls all you want. Uh, John, as far as I'm concerned, saved the Penn State community with all the research he did and doing what a true journalist does. And along with Franco Harris and many other people, but John, John spearheaded that and I will be eternally grateful no matter how many ungrateful Penn Staters and beyond there are. So thank you, John, for that. Much appreciated and I think uh, actually well-deserved. <laughs> no one else is going to do it. I will. So no, no doubt about that one. And it's... Uh, and now that you're you're doing death of journalism, I, one of the uh, you did a post Rose Bowl one, and uh, Marty Marty was on the field after that game. <laughs> God bless you for getting those passes, Marty. Uh, but uh, yeah. the two people well, you ran into, you, you you mentioned them on the podcast, and but any other people there? But you inspired two people to actually join join the legal profession because of the work that you had done. And uh, what, has there been as the years have gone on? Even though you know there's always people are going to be naysayers. But how, how has the reaction been as you know, we've had the benefit of hindsight for people to open their eyes up? Well, it's just been a long journey, as you know, Eric. Uh, it's been you know, almost 12 years now since the story uh, first exploded, the Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky scandal in November of 2011. I have spent most of the last 11 years, not all of it, but most of it, on this story. I never dreamed that that was possible uh, back in 2011, but that's where we are. And we culminated all of that work with an extraordinary podcast, an epic podcast. I don't think there's ever been a podcast like it called With the Benefit of Hindsight. Me and my co-host, Liz Beeb, we go through the entire story, not from the perspective of the conventional wisdom, but from the perspective of my journey through it. And my journey through it has been beyond extraordinary. And when I did with the benefit of hindsight with Liz and our producer, Mike Agavino, I had very low expectations. In fact, I didn't even want to do it because I knew that dragging me back into the story was going to be extremely emotionally and psychologically traumatic because I had accepted at that point that we were going to lose, that the truth was going to lose the justice was going to lose. And that was a difficult thing for me to accept. As you know, I'm a fighter. I, and I'll never give up till the end. And uh, so, and, you know, I, I was, I was not wanting to accept that, but in my brain, I had to accept that because otherwise I was just going to go crazy. And I tend to go through the stages of grief more quickly than uh, other people do. And so I'd already <laughs> known that this was over. And so I didn't want to go back into it, but I also had nothing else going on. And we started doing this and COVID hit and, you know, Liz was really instrumental in keeping my interest in that because I was basically taking her through my journey. She was a, a sports anchor at the Fox affiliate here in Los Angeles at the time. And she had bought in completely to the convention, the wisdom of the story. And then, um, you know, I was able to change her mind and she kind of plays the role of the listener going through the evolution uh, and through all the evidence and through the narrative from my perspective and through the prism of my experience. And like a lot of other people, in fact, almost everybody that I'm aware of, 
who goes through the entire with the benefit of hindsight experience, she's completely convinced that I'm right. And the conventional wisdom in the vast majority of the public and all of the mainstream news media is completely wrong on this. And I would say our conversion rate, I mean, there's no way for me to know for sure scientifically, but I have not run into anybody who has given the the podcast a, a real good chance and uh, and not come away convinced. And I've, I've probably been contacted by, I would say, many hundreds, if not over a thousand people who have contacted me on their own to say, you changed your my mind on this. Thank you for doing this, because otherwise I would have been still living in this dark fairy tale that we were told back in November of 2011. So that's been gratifying to some degree. It was a lot of work. I'm not sure that it was all worth it, uh, but at least there's a historical record now that really can't be disputed. And I, I do think that in the underground, there has been some progress. I mean, to me, one of the more interesting things that happened, I'm pretty sure you're aware of it, Graham Spanier on his book tour, the former president of Penn State, actually did a, a, a book signing in Pennsylvania that was broadcast on C-SPAN 2, and he told the story begrudgingly of how Penn State's counsel had met with him and told him that they had gone through everything. And he specifically said they'd even listened to the four hour plus interview he did with me for the benefit of, with the benefit of hindsight podcast, and that they had concluded that he had done absolutely nothing wrong. And, you know, that was somewhat gratifying. Even you know, Graham and I have had a very tumultuous relationship, um, but, and it continues to be, uh, you know, a roller coaster. And I, I like Graham as a person, but he and I vehemently disagree on a lot. Uh, and I, and I tell him when I disagree <laughs> in, in no uncertain terms, but, um, but that was somewhat gratifying. And, you know, some parts of his book are gratifying. There've been a few moments along the way that have, you know, made the pain a little less, uh, you know, difficult to deal with, but overall it's been the worst experience of my life. I've had a lot of bad experiences, but this professionally by far is the worst. And, um, and so, you know, it is what it is. It's an amazing piece of work, but it gets ignored by the media, certainly in this day and age, because that's not the world we live in anymore. Well, I know we've got one convert in this room right now with uh, actually two. Uh, Mar Marty has uh, been a great friend. who have been patient enough to uh, like listen to what I've been able to bring. Thanks to you educating us. And I know Marty's listened to the podcast and he's passed the information along with the benefit of hindsight. And uh I know, and, and with uh, Dr. Spanier's book tour, he's been, uh, and there's a lot of people that he's reaching that are getting the pendulum swing where it needs to. Where we get with, you know, the, the people who continue to say, uh, bury their heads in the sand, I don't know. But I, I can't thank you enough for at least getting people's minds to crack open a little bit. And next stop for me is making sure that the Penn State Alumni Association here in Phoenix post a book tour for Graham, something even as simple as that. They, no, 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 no. I'm like, and I don't know, it, it, to me, it, it's, and you, you discuss it in, in the, uh, I can't remember which uh, episode it was, but just the Penn State community just getting insular and just and, you know, and curling into a fetal position and just that whole self-flagellation. We're going to treat well, ourselves poorly. So you you see that we, you know, we, we don't agree with this heinous, these heinous right. actions, which didn't even no, happen. So, there, there's a lot of fascinating psychological aspects to the Penn State Paterno Sandusky story, but the reaction of Penn Staters is by far the most fascinating as well as the 
most frustrating. Sure. And, uh, and, and there's so many misperceptions about the case. And I think one of the most dramatic and one of the most impactful is that there's a perception, and this drove a lot of the media coverage early on. There's a perception that Penn Staters are so football crazed that they would do anything to defend football. And that's how this whole scandal happened, that this was all enabled by not wanting to disrupt the great football program at Penn State. And then once the scandal hits, it is so incomprehensible to the media that if Penn State was innocent, that Penn State itself as an institution, as well as those associated with Penn State, would so dramatically and so quickly plead guilty and criticize their own. That doesn't doesn't make any sense unless there's actual guilt, when in fact, it's exactly the opposite. In right. fact, it was it was self-flagellation. It was the it was really virtue signaling before we knew what virtue signaling was in the in the COVID era. I, I truly believe that the Penn State story set me up to understand what was happening with COVID far more quickly than anybody else. Because even though the stories don't seem to have a lot in common, they're actually incredibly similar. And one of the ways in which they're similar is that you have people who are virtue signaling, not based upon a, a knowledge or a belief that their side did something wrong or that Penn State was guilty, but that they want to show the rest of the world that they're not okay with this. And by the way, part of this virtue signaling was having the community state college convict Jerry Sandusky in record time without any damn evidence. And, and so when I, I try to explain this to people, and this is very difficult. I mean, it was difficult for Mike Agavino, our producer, when he came into the story uh, and, and because the, the natural inclination is, well, you want to appeal to Penn Staters, right? Because those are the people that have the greatest incentive here in theory to know what the truth is, to care about the truth, to spread the truth, especially when that truth is that you were all innocent and that nothing happened. But it's not that way. And it's not that way for a couple of reasons. One is that um, because Penn Staters went through so much trauma, and this is a lot like COVID, but COVID, by the way, this is mm -hmm. a lot like how you can never convince a mask, a big masker that masks don't work because they just put two and a half years of their life into a mask and maybe made their kids mask up. And so the last thing they want to do is acknowledge that they didn't have to do that. That was all for nothing. That was all wasted trauma and, and aggravation, similar to what we may be seeing with the vaccines in a different way. Um, but, and, but to be clear, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. The, sure. the reality here is that Penn Staters went through so much trauma. They went through so much trauma that they don't want to admit that they went through that for no reason. They don't want to admit that they got duped and threw five of their best people under the bus to their own detriment with no evidence and without any due process. They don't want to have to admit that. Mm -hmm. And so they are actually, they are actually the worst audience for this story. The very worst audience are Penn Staters and, you know, uh, Franco Harris, Penn State and Pittsburgh Steeler great, who unfortunately just passed away three days before the anniversary of the Immaculate Reception. As you know, he and I became very close during the right. story. 
And it's just devastating that Franco went, especially in the, in the, in the, in the timing that he went. And I think about him all the time and it, I, I very much miss him, but there's one small, tiny little uh, silver lining for me uh, in the fact that Franco is no longer here is that I no longer have to hold back on what I really think about Penn Staters. Because uh, because uh, I, I hate Penn Staters. I mean, I, I despise Penn Staters with every fiber of my being. Uh, I root harder against Penn State than I root against anybody in any sport. Um, uh, I, I cannot stand what uh, Penn Staters are. I, I despise them. Uh, and not everyone. Obviously, you're in a small group. There's I don't know what the <laughs> percentage you. is. Maybe five, maybe five to 10 percent of Penn Staters are not mm-hmm. uh, complete dirtbags uh, or cowards. Um, and, and virtue signaling as uh, scumbags, but but um, I I really have, a, as you can tell, a white hot disdain uh, for Penn Staters. And, well, and um, as one, I'm not too far behind you. And thank you for. I mean, you took me out of the dark ages with it. I was one of those people who was on the uh, you know rusted judgment, and you got a hold of me early, and I'm grateful for that. All these years later, and. Critical thinking, what a concept. And I'm glad you brought up the uh, the COVID thing. And, and one of the things I've loved from you from the get-go, from the two documentaries and, uh, and uh, you know, the, this work with the Penn State and the podcast, and especially Death of Journalism, it's your dogged, relentless pursuit of truth. And people just, it's hard for people to understand that now with, you know, everyone has their own truth or my truth or whatever it is. And just what, what inspired you to initially go down that path? I mean, just all the, just as a journalist to just get to the bottom of things, regardless. You mean in general or, or, on, or on the Penn State story? Well, I, I guess in general and, and, what, and, what, and obviously the through line to get you through to the death of journalism and your, your weekly and biweekly breakdowns there doing things that nobody else does. Well, it, it probably all has to do with my mother, <laughs> Uh, who uh, hasn't been with us in, for quite a long time. She was killed in a car accident in 1994. But she had a huge influence on me. Uh, and a large part of her influence, for better or for worse, was drilling into me the importance of the truth in general and also standing up for what you believe in. And that popularity really didn't matter. It was about being able to look yourself in the mirror and being able to know that you did the right thing and that if you do the right thing, I think, you know, the implication was that things would work out. She was very wrong about that part. Um, but I think, I think partially because that was a different era because in the era in which she lived, you know, the truth, I think still usually carried the day, not always, but usually, and it certainly had a lot more potency than it does now. I, I now believe that the truth has no power at all. I mean, I actually, I really do believe that the truth has zero value. If it was a coin, it would be a penny, basically. Uh, the truth has no real impact, especially in comparison to popularity. A popular lie will def- not just defeat, it will destroy an unpopular truth every single time, especially in today's media environment where social media carries the day and what carries social media social media is based entirely on popularity you know how many retweets how many shares how many likes uh, what how many impressions 
and what has it gone viral and then if it goes viral then other people pick it up and if it's viral then it must be real it must be true it must be valuable because that's all that matters and if it's not viral then it can't have any value because it doesn't matter if it's the truth or not if it's not viral no no one knows about it first of all and if they do find out about it it must not be real because if it was real it would go viral that's the, that's the presumption and it's not just not the truth it's the opposite of the truth and the reality is that you know um you know i think that that is a fundamental change that has occurred i don't know i don't think it happened overnight I think COVID absolutely was the final nail in the coffin that made it beyond clear that the truth has absolutely no meaning. I mean, I mean, everybody knew masks don't work. And yet, you know, here we are three years later and no one has acknowledged they were wrong about masks. And, and there are still areas of the country that mask and still areas, still schools that mandate masks on kids. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Uh, even in this, you know, very strange age in which we live. And so I am very despondent on the truth issue. And I guess uh, by the time I realized that truth has no power, meaning, or value, it was too late for me in my life. So I basically had put everything into I'm the truth guy. And so now I'm just going down in flames until, you know, th there's nothing left to, to give because I'm, I've, I've gone down this path uh, uh, of pursuing the truth too too far to come back now. There's no, there's no going back now. After you've declared Jerry Sandusky innocent <laughs> against the entire world, literally the entire world, uh, uh, there's really no no turning back uh, from that. Even though I'm a thousand percent sure I'm right, and as are people who finish with the benefit of hindsight podcast. So, um, and as far as specifically the Penn State story. Well, as you know, at that time, I was—I I had a legitimate career as a conservative documentary filmmaker. I had produced two documentary films. The previous one had debuted on the Today Show in a, in a very contentious interview with Matt Lauer in the prime 730 slot. It was about the 2008 presidential election. And I was looking for a, a new project. And I was looking at what was happening in State College, Pennsylvania, from the perspective of what the hell is going on here with regard to Joe Paterno. I didn't even care about Jerry Sandusky. I barely remembered. I had a memory of him as a football fan, but not a strong one. And I was never a huge Penn State fan or didn't hate them like I do now. I you know, admired them, admired Joe Paterno. I uh, have been grown up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. You know, I had never gone to state college, but I've been to a Penn State game or two at the old vet in Philadelphia when they would play Temple and I would root for Temple. And um, and so. Uh, I'm looking at this and I'm, and as you know, Eric, I have a very good BS detector and uh, my BS the best, folks, the best, <laughs> my, my BS detector is immediately at a 10 but on the, on this, on just the story involving Joe Paterno, having, having been told of the rape of a child in a Penn state shower and passing it up the food chain and basically never doing anything about it. I mean, that was just a preposterous story. I didn't need any details to know that's a story that is preposterous. Now, sometimes preposterous things happen. Sometimes OJ Simpson kills his wife and her friend who just happens to show up at the house at the absolutely wrong time. Yeah, but there's, guess what? There's a ton of evidence to support that. And here it was obvious that there was no evidence. There was no logic. It made no sense. Sandusky wasn't even an assistant coach at the time. There was a 10 year, at least a 10 year delay 
Uh, we would l- soon learn that McQueary, the only witness, got the date, the month, and the year totally wrong. I would later learn he got it wrong totally and r- completely twice in a way that t- 100% changes the entire narrative and makes it impossible for his story to be true. And so that I, I was very upset by this. I was like, if this can happen to Joe Paterno, then this can happen to anybody. And I also knew, Eric, that I was uniquely designed to go into that fire, right? I mean, uh, you know, this is going to sound egotistical, but I knew even back then, I knew the media was so incredibly vulnerable to blowing this because of the, the specifics of the story. And I also knew, okay, this is going to take somebody who really knows what they're doing and has brass balls and you know, isn't going to be afraid of the heat. And that's me. Uh, and, um, and so if there had been somebody else, I've said this a hundred times, if there had been somebody else, you know, that was as, as qualified or more qualified to do this, I would have said, please (laughs) take this, go, go, go in there, go, go in the fire and save them because this is, this is bull crap. But I never found anybody that was even close to qualified enough to get into the fire. And I would get deeper and deeper and deeper into the fire as I realized there were more and more bodies in there that didn't deserve to be in there. And um, and I was, you know, my background was really uniquely designed for this story. I mean, having grown up in Pennsylvania, having coached high school football in two different states, having covered college football and pro football as a sportscaster, you know, being an expert in the media, having been at the highest levels of the media, both in sports and news, uh, understanding academia and the way that boards work. My father had been on every board at Georgetown University. I kept thinking, you know, what would he do under similar circumstances? And I knew he would do whatever the hell the New York Times told him to do. So so that what the, the, the what the board did made absolutely no impact on me at all. It was like, I don't, you know, because pe- most people are like, well, wait a minute, the board voted unanimously to fire jo- jo- Joe Paterno. They can't possibly be wrong. I'm like, really? Really? You want to bet? You want to bet? I know these people. They're all a bunch of cowards and they don't care. They don't have any clue about what's going on. It's a panic situation. It's a moral panic and they're just doing what they're told to do. And I would later find out I was 100% right about that. And so, um, and there were other elements of the story that I think kind of made it, uh, you know, you know, uniquely designed for me to be able to withstand the heat. I mean, that's the main thing. You got to have somebody who just does not care about what people think of them. And that's, yeah, as you know, Eric, that's me. I, I really, I really do not care. Uh, and so um, all Thank those you for things, not caring. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> I it, know. Doesn't, it doesn't help um, a lot in a lot of different areas. And it's, it's a major well, I, problem. I, I, I it's a major problem for my wife, I can tell you. Um, right. But, but um, I'm so, so that's convinced, a, though, I said this a while back, and I know as a Philadelphia area guy, the Rocky analogy, just like when Apollo Creed told Rocky, Oh, you don't listen to them. Polly says, don't listen to those guys. Paul says, no, do listen to them. They're all going to owe you an apology at some point. And I'm convinced there will be people apologizing to you at some point. I don't know when. Won't be that. I don't know how gratifying it will be. But I, I just like the, the pendulum. Even when it swings a little bit in the right direction, it, it makes up for, you know, the. the I would like to believe you're right, it. Eric, but I can assure you that you're not. <laughs> you're the eternal pessimist i'm the eternal optimist. no 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 i'm i'm not the eternal pessimist the i'm actually i'm actually a, the delusional optimist at times uh 
Um, but whenever I'm uh, pessimistic, I'm always right. So, um, you know, I just don't think this world is designed for this story. I, I just don't think there's, there's just no path um, for it ever to be fixed, especially when, when Graham Spanier knows that Jerry is innocent and he has a book out and, and saying that would create a lot of attention for his book and he's unwilling to do so even, even when I confront him about it and he won't even push back that I'm wrong. It's not like he's denying that what I'm saying is, is incorrect uh, or that what I'm saying is correct, that he knows that Jerry is innocent when he's unable and unwilling to do that, Eric, we're living in a world where there's just no way to fix this. If, if we were going to fix this, Graham Spanier would be telling the truth about what he knows that Jerry Zendusky is in fact innocent. And he's unwilling to do that because he's a virtue signaling liberal who doesn't want to get kicked out of the, the remaining clubs that he's still a, a member of. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some of that. All right, fine. I'll be a little bit more delusionally optimistic in your club, but I still, as my dad says, I like to swallow the happy horse shit too much. So I'll, that's good. Make, good for you. It's probably it's, someone with it, but that's a, but it's a nice know. place to be, Eric. I wish I could be there with you because my, my psyche would be in a lot better shape. I know. Well, I, I wish some of it on you, but, but I do know that the doggedness has led you down to the death of journalism. And I love the breakdowns that you do on that. And especially the one you did early on, I uh, can't remember which episode it was, but just breaking down like the, there's no longer broadcast. It's all microcasts and, and, and all of that. And with the death of journalism, because it's something that's not as toxic as the Sandusky story movie, what's the feedback been like with death of journalism episodes now that you're on to episode 33? Well, as we taped this, I just taped uh, episode 34 this morning. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, people seem to like it. It, it hasn't um gotten the the level of popularity that it would need to get to to be a, a rousing success i mean it's in the top one percent of all podcasts which i guess is is good um but i mean it it probably isn't doing well enough right now from a purely popularity standpoint to sustain itself you know deep into the future because it's a lot of work mm. and um and it's draining as hell i mean when I finish these two hour episodes, I mean, I do these in, in a very different way than anyone else does a podcast. Uh, I mean, I'll give you some, and I don't know if you care, but I'll give you some insight. I mean, I don't know of anybody else that does a two hour episode podcast where they hit record and they just start talking with a couple of notes and they pause for sound bites to be inserted in the production afterwards. But basically, you know, if I, I might pick up once or twice, if I screw up a name or something, but that's all I do is I just talk for an hour and 45 minutes usually. And hopefully it's somewhat coherent at the end of the whole thing. And that's the podcast. And I used to do it with Liz, who was my co-host on with the benefit of hindsight. But unfortunately, Liz was so stretched living literally in three different right. places, Florida, Pennsylvania, and, and here in Los Angeles, that it became almost impossible to schedule the podcast and keep it timely. See, that's, that's the real challenge of a podcast like this, because it's not a, like a true crime situation where you're on your own time schedule and you script it all out and it doesn't really matter when you record it. This this is about the news. And so in order to remain timely and and contemporaneous, uh, you have to churn them out in, in a in pretty quick order. And, and in fact, I mean, just today I had to redo part of the podcast because 
um, I had, I did not have an update on the James O'Keefe project Veritas story uh, as I was taping it. So I had to, we had to go back and, and redo that. I mean, that just to keep it from being dated already when it comes right. out the next morning. And so, you know, I'm not a celebrity. I don't have access to a, a massive audience. We have no promotional budget. Um, you know, so I don't know what the future of that is. I, at times I like it. I mean, it's definitely what my career has been all about has been exposing the, the death of journalism. Um, and we do so, I think in a unique and, and compelling fashion, I think I understand what has happened with the news media and can predict I can both analyze what's happened and predict what's going to happen next better than anybody else because I understand the media so well. And it's and it's partially because I've been in virtually every aspect of the news media at both the highest and the lowest levels. And so I, I really I know where you know how the sausage is made. I know where the bodies are buried. I know a lot of the players personally still to this day and or I know people who know the players. And, you know, you'll, you'll, I would say that almost every episode, you're going to hear something, at least one thing, maybe more than that, on the, that particular episode that you've not heard anywhere else. I, that's right. my always my goal is that you're going to hear something from me about something that, that's relevant in the news that you won't hear anywhere else. And, um, and I'm able to do that because I, I tend to have unique views anyway. I'm, I mean, I'm the last uh, living conservative who was uh, anti-Trump and anti-COVID hysteria. I mean, I'm the last one on the planet. There's, there's, there's no, there's no one else in that club. That club has a, you know, can meet in a phone booth um, if phone booths still existed. And so um, uh, I think that gives me an, an interesting and unique perspective. And I know with uh, uh the unique perspective and uh, I was able to share with Marty who's a huge Steelers fan. I'm going to hand it over to him because uh, the, the Franco Harris thing that you guys did and I coming from a, a big Steelers family, Western Pennsylvania that I am. And it's, uh, it's, that was so appreciated that you and, and Liz going on and doing that the day after. And thank you for that. Just as, I mean, every, everything else that you guys do, it, it's, it's definitely appreciated. I'm going to, I'm going to hand it over to Marty right now. Cause I know he had a couple of questions in regards to uh, the COVID situation. Martin to you. Hey, uh, almost want to tap the mic. Is this thing on? Drive safely, Marty. Yeah, we can hear you. Uh, all right, we can all. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm uh, somewhere in the desert, in the California desert, heading home from Havasu. Uh, uh, great to meet you. Uh, listening to your stuff and outstanding. And uh, I was just listening as I was driving to episode thirty-three. And uh, two things. Uh, I, I noticed you were you were. You know, you were talking about the Hamlet thing, and uh, I'm realizing that maybe this uh, moving to a softer general NFL, how is that going to affect college football and, by extension, high school football and Pop Warner, which Pop Warner is almost gone now, it seems. Well, I actually look at it in the opposite direction, Martin. I, I, I think that um, that because football is – effectively non-existent at the lower levels that it has to eventually seep up into the upper levels. It'll take longer to get uh, the NFL, for instance, to be fully pussified. Uh, although the rules have done a heck of a job of, of that, uh, especially when it comes to the quarterback. But I have to say, um, 
I had a, an extraordinary culture shock. Eric will appreciate this uh, as, as someone who's lived all over the country. You know, I had, um, I never played football. I went to a, a, um, an all boys Catholic, small Catholic school just outside of Philadelphia. That was a basketball school. We didn't have a football team and I was never going to play football anyway. Cause I was a scrawny little kid you know, back when it mattered. I only grew in college. And so, um, but I did coach bizarrely. I coached a freshman high school football team in ocean city, New Jersey, where we had a really good program and we had a very great team, a very good team. We only lost one game that year. And that was, that was in um, the, the late, I think it was 1990. I guess that was the year, first year, maybe it was 1989, but it was, you know, a different, totally different era. And that was real football and uh, you know, rock'em, sock'em, old school football. And I never coached again until 2010 in Southern California. Now, granted, the school where I coached it was a very upscale private school, which is going to definitely uh, increase the wussification uh, threshold. Uh, you know, when the kids are, are super rich, they're going to be softer. But this was a legitimate football program, small school, but a, another team on the varsity level that did very well, only lost two games. We won a playoff game that year. And I was an assistant coach of the varsity and I was the head eighth grade football coach and uh, offensive coordinator. Interestingly on my eighth grade team, my quarterback was Josh Rosen, who was later, (laughs) later, later the quarterback for UCLA and later the first round draft pick of the Arizona Cardinals. So, and I would never have advised anybody to draft Josh Rosen in the first round based upon my eighth grade experience with him. (laughs) Um, And I was right about that. But anyway, here's, here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the point of the story. When I came to Southern California in, in 2010, I realized, you know, that that's a 20 year span in, in culturally, but New Jersey to California, I'm even, I'm even grading for New Jersey being tougher than Southern California. I was completely horrified and shocked at how completely different the sport was uh, that I was supposed to be coaching in 2010 in Southern California. I mean, it was almost night and day. The kids were complete wusses. They, they had zero fortitude. There was no contact. There was no tackling. It was almost as if it was non-tackle football. This is varsity, varsity high school football from a team that would end up winning a playoff game. I mean, if there, it, it, it was astonishing. And I don't think that uh, there's a, it's a coincidence that you know, Cal- as goes California, goes to the rest of the country in almost everything. And these these wussification things tend to start in California and then migrate their way out. And I, I believe, from my experience, that this probably started to gain a foothold. This wussification in California at the high school and, and the lower levels, and you know, partially because parents being afraid of concussions and injuries and all that. And it's not a coincidence that. Over the last 20 years, ever since the USC dynasty broke up, that college football in California has sucked ass. Uh, I mean, there's and then there's not that's not a coincidence. I mean, it, it's because now, granted, I'll, obviously some of the the players come from outside of California, but your your recruiting base is still California, and you you can't compete against the Southeastern conference when you got a bunch of kids that never played tackle football, they played this facsimile of tackle football. And so it's not, a, it is not a coincidence that almost every national champion in the last decade has come from the Southeast. 
uh, because that's where you're still allowed to play real football as a kid, you know, from the time that you're, you know, 10 years old and up. And in California, that's not the case. So unfortunately, I believe that that's, as goes California, that's where the rest of the country is going to go. And I think that Southeastern dominance will continue as long as they're able to maintain their their ability to keep the wussification from you know gaining too much of a foothold um and i i really do believe based upon my experiences in pennsylvania and what a bunch of wussies they are that the big 10 is going to be next i mean the big 10 is we've already seen the big 10 doesn't play big 10 football anymore they play this wide open brand of basketball with pads and um and i i just don't think that the big 10 is going to be able to compete long-term as long as the rules stay the same with the Southeast Southeastern conference, because in the Southeast, the kids are still playing tackle football and that's still the name of the game, blocking and tackling to a certain degree. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that that's my answer. But do you, do you anticipate uh, that going the way of the Dodo because of the rules, uh, you know, uh, the, the three yards and the cloud of dust, Bo Schembechler style is all but gone. And I mean, will, will they uh, move it out with the rules as the NFL has? Yeah, I, I, I it's clear that that's the direction the rules are going in. Um, you know, that's going to be an interesting battle. I think the you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that the pro ball went to flag football. I, I, and I, I don't think that was harmless either. I, I, I think that that, was at some level a normalization of this concept uh, of flag football. And um, I never would have dreamed, I never would have dreamed it even possible that at the major college or pro level, we could see quarterbacks wearing flags. Um, I can, I can envision that. I can envision flags being on the quarterbacks. I really can. It's become such a quarterback league now and, they, and the, the stars are so valuable and that's where the money is. That's where the ratings are. And my gosh, you know, the NFL did gangbuster ratings this year, the Super Bowl on down, huge, huge ratings in, in an era where ratings are down everywhere. I believe it was 82 out of the top 100 television broadcasts in 2022 were NFL football games. Um, and, and it's just so I mean, the NFL is almost single-handedly keeping television afloat. So they're, they're not going to do anything to reverse the path that they're currently on, whether that's in their wokeism or in their wussification of the game, because people love the more wide-open style. Now, I don't know if you took a poll of football fans, whether they would agree with that. I mean, because, frankly, you know, whenever there was a, uh, a very controversial roughing the passer call this year, it would go viral with, you know, tens of thousands of retweets and views from people who seem to agree that this is bull crap. Um, and, and, but the core football fan doesn't seem to matter anymore. It, it's, it's, that's not who the NFL was targeting. They've, they've decided they can crap in the face of the, of the, the core football fan. And sure. all they're trying to do is appeal to the marginal football fan. And to the marginal football fan, they don't really care that the quarterback can't get hit. And so, you know, I I, I don't know how long it's going to take, but I think, you know, I, I talk about this with regard to the media all the time. 
I think the media is going to get news media is going to get worse even than it currently is because there's still at least some semblance of institutional memory that exists today, but that's going to die off. People are going to keep retiring, dying. You know, they're just not going to exist anymore. And, and as younger and younger people take over, they don't have any memory of the way things used to be or the way they should be. Well, similar in football, I mean, our, our, our generation is, is losing power on a daily basis. And what we care about is, is not going to win the day, not going to carry the day. And so, you know, as the, uh, the Dick Butkuses of the world start to die off in large numbers, uh, I don't know that there's going to be as much resistance to doing things that would have been seen as impossible to believe. I mean, heck, the Pro Bowl going to the flag football was already impossible to believe. But um, now that they've done that, I think they've broken a barrier with regard to normalization. And um, and so I, I, I basically think that football is headed towards basketball and pads. I, I think uh, scoring-wise, contact-wise, uh, I, I think that's where we're headed. And um, – uh, follow up to that. Do you think that <laughs> encapsulating everything you just said, how do you think that relates to other parts of society where we see you hear things like toxic masculinity and, uh, you know, uh, boss bitches and, you know, it's starting to become unpopular to be just a regular guy. Um, this seems to be uh, one of those cases of the, the weaker you make men, the easier they are to control and I, I, this seems to be tied in with it. I agree that this is all tied together, that um, that the the demonization of toxic masculinity is clearly part of the hatred of football. I mean, liberals, I wish, I really wish liberals were one tenth as good at governing as they are at destroying stuff. Um, <laughs> but, when, but, but when they target something for destruction, they are really good at it. And they hate football. They hate everything about it. They hate the toxic masculinity. They they uh, they hate the, the fact that, you know, the stronger team usually wins, that the losing team often ends up injured. Uh, they hate the cheerleaders. By the way, I, maybe I'm being paranoid, but I've even noticed that, um, and this is bizarre to me because I don't see what their self-interest in this is, but I've even noticed because my 10-year-old daughter is huge into the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, television never shows cheerleaders anymore. Because well, I think teams don't have them. Well, but I think it's also because cheerleading has become almost un PC because it's seen as women subjugated to men and, you know, it's sex appeal of women and they're being somehow, uh, you know, abused by being forced to be there. Some, some crazy mind numbing absurdity like that. I, I don't know even what it is, but I have noticed because my daughter is always asking where are the cheerleaders that you almost never see the cheerleaders. And by the way, on the high school level, liberals have done a brilliantly evil thing to destroy cheerleading by just eliminating cuts. And if you eliminate cuts, that means everybody can be a cheerleader, which means it's no longer a, a privileged position to be a cheerleader, which means that it's not just the pretty girls anymore. The ugly girls can be cheerleaders. And as soon as the ugly girls can be cheerleaders, it's no longer a prestigious thing. So then the pretty girls don't want to be cheerleaders anymore. Now, all of a sudden, being a cheerleader goes from being a position of honor to being, oh, oh, you're a cheerleader. Oh, um, and, and that's really where, where and, and, and then so once you kill that, once you kill that, 
I mean, I, I really believe, much like tackling and, and, and blocking, the Southeastern Conference college football will be the last place you still have cheerleaders because that's the last place you're still going to have girls and women growing up to want to be cheerleaders, uh, much like uh, what they did with Miss America. Uh, um, you know, they killed Miss America in much the same way. And so, um, you know, I, I don't have, I realize that Eric says I'm a pessimist by nature, but I, I don't have a lot of, um, I don't, I, the, here's the one, the one thing I think that here's, here's my optimism on this point. I, I think that you have tens and tens of thousands of years of human evolution on your side when it comes to masculinity at least being able to hold on. You see what I'm saying? In other words, I, I find it hard to believe that in one generation, we're going to erase all of our DNA that is built in that, uh, you know, masculinity has a value to it. I, I find that, I, I don't believe that even woke culture is going to be able to completely defeat that. And I think it is possible we could see the pendulum swing back slightly in the other direction, you can't see that pendulum swing back in the realm of race because in the realm of race is the pendulum swings in the direction it is currently going in every point you pass, you're determining that the point you just passed is racist. So you can't then go back and go, no, no, this isn't racist anymore. But with masculinity, I think there's at least a chance that that pendulum swings somewhat back in the other direction, simply because of human evolution. Uh, war may help that swing. We, it uh, tends it tends to do so. It's an, it's it's interesting how liberals do like toxic masculinity when they really need it. <laughs> oh just, yeah, they they call that toxically masculine cop to come save him because she knows he will. <laughs> He'll throw himself into the fire so that you know we can have this society. Well, uh, I will yield my time here momentarily, but I do have one more question for you. Um, do you intend to do a more deep dive into the uh, the pandemic or you know the the COVID uh, the COVID uh, we'll call it an event? Uh, do you well, plan to go deeper and wider and maybe do something uh, in that regard, like you did with maybe nine eleven or the Sandusky thing? Is a good example. Well. The second and third episodes of The Death of Journalism go pretty deeply into the alternative narrative on the COVID insanity or panic, as I like to refer to it. But I agree that there's a lot more meat on that bone. I have proposed to a couple of different conservative media outlets uh, documentaries on this subject. I, I believe I, I believe that the working title was panic propaganda and politics the counter narrative to the the covid pandemic i think that was what what i wanted to call it um, like it. and yeah i mean i liked it a lot too uh, i got nowhere <laughs> with either with even though i was dealing with the very highest levels of both conservative media outlets i, I i'm not really sure why that happened my guess is it wasn't a, a substance issue you know, these, you know, these tend to be dysfunctional uh, outlets in general. Um, and, you know, money's always an issue. Uh, I would love to do something like, I would love to do something like that. I, my guess is it won't happen, frankly, because it, I think it's probably a little 
getting to the be on the little too late side, um, you know, I think um, it, it kind of depends on whether or not DeSantis wins the Republican uh, nomination. If DeSantis wins the Republican presidential nomination, I think the story has legs. But if he doesn't, I think, you know, since Trump is part of the problem on that, and you know Biden's certainly not going to be somebody that wants to revisit it. I think I think that that'll be in the dustbin of of history. Uh, the entire COVID panic. That we're, uh, so that's one of the reasons why I think it's imperative that DeSantis wins. But I'm also not optimistic that that's going to happen. Yeah, I kind of kind of leaning in your direction. It just doesn't look like I, I, like you had said earlier. Uh, people, people don't want to admit that they uh, that they were fooled. They don't people, want to admit that they went along with something that was so clearly mismanaged and ridiculous. Well, it's the old saying: it's far easier to dupe someone than to convince them that they've been duped, and that's sure. that's really what it's all about. And that's that is one of the most the most truthful uh, adages that I can think of, and I, I think about it almost every day. And Jim, uh, anything uh, from from up in the pack northwest? And I'm glad that the windstorms have died down enough that you're able to join us tonight. So, uh... yeah, so far we have uh, full whole integrity up here, but uh, we'll see we'll see what happens. Uh, just yeah, one quick question. It's kind of related to Mark to Marty's question. Um, on your most recent episode, you talked about what happened to Demar Hamlin, and uh, you know, obviously, just the latest in a, a long line of athletes that are you know, young athletes in, in the prime of their lives just collapsing. And of course the media is playing this game of, well, we can talk about this, but we can't, you can't talk about that one part of it, that one possibility. You just, you're just not allowed to talk about it. So, um, but it, it just feels like there's been so many of these cases and there's probably so many more to come. It feels like at some point it's going to happen so many times to so many different athletes in the public eye that, we're just going to have to start talking about it. Do you foresee at some point this this issue reaching a critical mass because it just keeps happening and happening in the public eye? Do you foresee this reaching a, a point of critical mass where it's actually going to become a something we talk we start talking about on the national level? Well, it would take a lot, a lot for the mainstream news media to accept um, that this is a legitimate issue. I mean, look at the the Mar Hamlin situation. I mean, it happened in the biggest regular season game of the year in prime time, Monday night football. The guy literally dies on the field. The game ends up getting canceled in a way that I, I didn't agree with, but that's a different story. Um, he survives. And then um, when he finally gives his first interview on the subject, he gets asked, so what the heck happened? And he gives the exact answer you would give if this was actually a very politically troubling answer. Like for instance, yeah, I think it was because I took the vaccine. He paused for like 10 seconds, hemmed and hawed and says, that's something I don't want to get into. Um, now you couldn't make that up. And yet, even when that happened, there's not been any discussion of this in the mainstream or left-wing media. So what would it take? If that doesn't do it, what would it take? And I, I really think, unfortunately, it would take a, a couple of more 
similar circumstances to happen in high profile situations. I mean, one just happened in Belgium where a Belgium goalkeeper died on the field from cardiac arrest after making a save of a penalty shot. And, and like Hamlin, that was not Commodia Cordis. I mean, we now know that it was not Commodia Cordis as Dr. Fauci told us with regard to DeMar Hamlin. Otherwise we would have been told that definitively over and over again. They've dropped Commodia Cordis because it wasn't Commodia Cordis. Well, we knew it wasn't that as soon as Fauci said it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> as soon as he was positive, yeah, it was a good bet that that's not what it was. Um, that's a good point. But, um, you know, so and I don't know if it was the vaccines or not. I have no idea. I just know that if it wasn't Commodia Cordis and it wasn't a pre-existing condition, we've and he's 24 years old and in perfect health, then that has really narrowed down the options. Now, I will say I am someone who does not. I am allergic to making assessments based upon anecdotal evidence. And, you know, I think that's what we really have here. That is, it's very dangerous to go based upon, well, we're seeing a lot of videos of athletes dropping on the field. Well, okay, that's interesting. It's a very small sample size. And it's also a situation that we could just be looking out for it a lot more now than we ever were before. And we, we could have, you know, it's been joked about that, uh, you know, you're a coincidence theorist. Someone did a great video about co coincidence theory, uh, but it could be uh, in part coincidence. And so, um, or, or people buying into a narrative and then seeing everything else through that narrative. I'm very, very hesitant to do that. I like data. I like, you know, I, I like something a little bit um, more fundamentally strong to, to base my assessments on than, than random videos from all over the world. But I will acknowledge that, you know, certainly the, the Mar Hamlin situation was extremely uh, unprecedented and that there seem to be other situations that are similar. I'm at the level right now of I want there to be strong questioning which I know the media is never going to do. I mean, Michael Strahan did a decent job, if only by accident, with DeMar Hamlin, but there was no follow-up. And so I, I want strong questioning, and I want uh, the media to get to the bottom of, of some of these answers, and I have absolutely no faith that that's going to happen because they are literally, literally conflicted because of the money that the pharmaceutical companies spend on advertising and because they were so invested in the original narrative themselves. And so... Um, you know, that I think is, is really where we're at on this. So I don't have an answer to what's happening. Um, I, I am very skeptical. The Hamlin thing pushed me further towards something is going on here. But one last thing on this, because I got a lot of people saying, well, John, if this was the vaccines with everyone having taken the vaccine, wouldn't more people have been falling dead already? And I say, well, no, not necessarily, because I look at it as, a lightning strike situation. I mean, getting struck by lightning is a very, very, very rare circumstance, but you still don't want to put yourself at risk of doing that. So, you know, when lightning is abound, uh, we now, we never did this before, but we now stop football games and we certainly stop golf tournaments and other outdoor events because no one wants to get struck by lightning. And under, you know, what seems to be the theory of the vaccines influencing this, Basically, what you're doing is you're increasing your chances of getting struck by lightning. It's still going to be a very small number of people, but it's a risk that wasn't needed because 
the people that are being struck by lightning had no need to take the vaccine to begin with because they were not vulnerable to the virus because it doesn't kill 24 year old athletes. So that's my view on that. And since we're, we are sticking with the football thing, I want to go back to what you and Marty were talking about quickly, John, because you had a unique uh, circumstance being knowing Franco. Uh, and we, we all grew up in the era of Dick Butkus and, and Franco played with my favorite linebacker, Jack Lambert in the grass meant yeah. how, how far the, the linebacker was going to bury the quarterback's head in the turf. And did you and Franco ever have any conversations about the wussification of football and how he saw it maybe heading down a direction that, you know, was kind of antithetical to, to football, especially when yeah, like, we, you grew up playing. We, we did talk about that a little bit. We, we had, you know, one of the more interesting things about, my relationship with Franco was that not only was I an Eagles fan growing up who hated the Steelers, but I really hated Franco Harris because, uh, you know, he was known for running out of bounds all the time. And, you know, so you can never get a good clean hit on him. And so I never had any, I hated the Steelers and Franco was probably my least favorite Steeler. Uh, and so ironic, it's incredibly ironic that we end up becoming rather close and I, I did ask him quite a bit about this issue of running out of bounds. And he gave me a classic Franco answer. I that, can't wait. Okay. All right. Well, it's a great answer. And it, <laughs> and, it, and it tells you everything you need to know about Franco Harris. And it's something that I never thought about. And I was actually disappointed that in his NFL network of football life, which aired just two days after he died, because it was, to sync with the 50th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception. They address this issue, but they don't let Franco give the proper explanation. So here's his brilliant explanation for running out of bounds. In the old days, most football fields were crowned, meaning, you know, for, for the purposes of, of water getting off the field, if it rained, right, for, for uh, drainage. And so in, inevitably... When a running back was running towards the out-of-bounds marker, they were literally running downhill. And, and for them to then turn it up the field and get that extra yard maybe two and not go out of bounds, it would mean putting an enormous amount of stress on their outside ankle, knee, and hip because you're running downhill and you've got to shift direction to get that one extra yard by putting it up the field instead of just letting your momentum take you out of bounds. And Franco made a decision that if he was going to have a long career, that eventually one of those times where he tried to make that weight shift as a big guy, I mean, Franco was a, for by running back standards, was huge, that one of those times something was going to give, that an ankle was going to give, a knee was going to give, a hip was going to give, and that this was a, a, a bad business decision, basically. This was, he, he was playing the percentages. And so it wasn't about being afraid to being hit. And, and, I, was, and I, I was like, wow, that is so brilliant. And as I looked at Franco's highlight films in retrospect, because I watched those Super Bowl films you know, with John Facenda narrating religiously, uh, I love those things. And it's clear that when Franco is running up the middle, he has zero concern about avoiding contact. It's only when he's going out of bounds where he has that momentum. And he knows that if he tries to shift that momentum, 
he's making himself vulnerable to a leg injury that he does that. And I thought that was classic Franco that he had thought all this through and it was a brilliant decision because he had this very long career. And oh, by the way, he still had his wits about him when a lot of great NFL running backs did not, or at least he had, you know, both his ability to walk and think. And so he made the right decision. I mean, he ended up with four, four Super Bowl rings, a, a, a yellow uh, a gold uh, Hall of Fame jacket, uh, all sorts of records, and he was still able to walk and think uh, right up till the day he died. So I, I he completely changed my mind on that, and I thought it was classic Franco, and um, and he was one of the wisest men I had ever met, uh, even in situations where I thought he was wrong. He was he had always thought it through. And he changed, you know, how, Eric, you know how difficult it is to change my mind on anything, but Franco <laughs> changed my, changed my mind on a few things. And that was one of them. So well, I want to thank you again for that, the unique perspective that you guys had and, and you guys were the ultimate truth warriors. And very quickly, I want to give a, I, you're the ultimate BS detector. The man who has been with us here tonight as well. Marty is my number two guy in terms of being a BS detector. So I tend to attract those kind of people apparently to help me along with my <laughs> by, by way, attitude. Everything's Mar- going to be okay. Martin, what did you think of the Franco out of bounds story? By the way, were, were you satisfied? Uh, yeah, I <laughs> I'm never satisfied, uh, but I love that answer, and I think that's it. I think that makes all the sense in the world. And yeah, well, besides injury, you're saving a lot of energy for the fourth quarter. That's well, brilliant. absolutely. Well, brilliant. Frank, Frank, Franco, and I had that conversation over dinner one time. And uh, I remember being blown away by, because I was thinking there's not going to be any good answer to this. Um, But, uh, you know, I mean, Franco, you you, as a Steeler fan, you'll love this. Franco insists that the only reason why he got drafted by the Steelers was that he found out that at the senior bowl, they were giving away, I think it was a $2,500. For some reason, that number sticks in my head, a $25 um, check to whoever the MVP of the game was and he needed the money. So he said he played his ass off in the senior bowl and that's why the Steelers drafted him. So <laughs> if, if it hadn't been, if it hadn't been for that, cause it was kind of a surprise that the Steelers drafted him as high as they did. Sure, and, it, sure. and it was all, it was all because of that $2,500 in the senior bowl. He said. Incentives. <laughs> And uh, before we go, I, I want to thank you again, John, for joining us and, and the patience, everybody, as we got things set up here tonight with, with the, the Zoom thing. Uh, I was reminded in one of the podcasts uh, earlier this year, you're, I, you're a Georgetown guy and you were there. I was a Georgetown guy, the John Thompson and uh, Patrick Ewing days. Uh, I'd like to get a, a unique perspective. You, you were a man like in, in the trenches there. Uh, any unique perspectives from someone who, uh, a super fan of the, of the Patrick Ewing years that uh, we may not have known about? Well, um, I came to Georgetown the year after Patrick left. Uh, I was the only uh, person in Philadelphia who was going to Georgetown who was rooting for Villanova in the 1985 National Championship game because um, I, I did not like uh, John Thompson. Um, I was obviously a huge Hoya fan when I got there, but I, right. I just thought that the Villanova story was so amazing. Um, and I, my mother and father had gone to Georgetown. So I, I was, had been rooting for Georgetown for a long time. And, you know, I, I never even visited Georgetown. My, I, I only school I ever visited was Syracuse 
And my mother was terrified that I would go up see the carrier dome and she would never see me again. Uh, she really wanted me to go to Georgetown. So I ended up going to Georgetown and I will say that I do think it had indirectly a huge impact on some of the things I've done in my career, because I, I think you'll appreciate this, Eric, as you know, a huge part of my persona and why I do some of the things that I do is that I have basically asbestos skin and I'm completely unintimidated by anybody. Well, a large part of that comes from dealing with John Thompson for four years because, because for four years, I covered the basketball team for the radio station, which was a crappy radio station at Georgetown university, but it didn't matter. I would go to almost every game and almost every post game press conference and, all sorts of other press conferences and there's pictures in the Washington post of me and John Thompson together, me questioning him a couple of different ones, which is kind of funny. Um, and, um, and I have to tell you that was a great, great learning uh, ground. I mean, that was a great place because if you could endure John Thompson, right. If you weren't intimidated by John Thompson, you weren't intimidated by anybody because he was literally the most intimidating presence in all of sports. And so here I am a 19 year old, you know, skinny white kid who's no experience in this. And I'm questioning John Thompson, uh, you know, after Georgetown basketball games, uh, when he, he, sometimes he clearly didn't want to be questioned. I feel like that was a great baptism by fire. And that by, uh, by being able to get through that and learn from that, I think it really set me up for better, for worse for a lot of what I did later on in my career and not being intimidated by, by anybody. And, um, and so I, I probably don't give that nearly enough credit. I, I really think that John Thompson had indirectly again, for better, or for worse, a lot to do with how I ended up because if, you know, if I had gone someplace else and not dealt with John Thompson on a, a biweekly basis, I would not have been as nearly as prepared uh, to deal with other situations once I got into the professional realm of first the sports media and then the news media. As far as the players are concerned, I mean, I mean, I was there during the Alonzo morning, the Kimbe Mutombo era, and the Kimbe and I actually had quite an interesting history where um, most people, in fact, almost no one knows this, but Dikimbe did not play varsity basketball his first year at Georgetown. He had come over from Africa. He was a project. And so he was not on the team. But get this. He did play intramural basketball at Georgetown. So I want you to, I want you to imagine seven foot two Dikimbe Mutombo, who no one had ever heard of before playing intramural basketball against five foot 10 white guys uh, who might've, might've played on their freshman basketball team. Um, And I happened to be picked uh, to referee his first game in America. And the reason why I was picked was because at the time, (laughs) this shows you how rudimentary things were at the time, our college golf coach, was also the person who ran the intramural program. And I was on the golf team and, and a lot of the golfers would make a few extra bucks on the side, refereeing these games. And so I refereed the Kimbe Mutombo's first game and I'm not exaggerating. This is not hindsight. 
This is exactly the way it went down. I've told the story hundreds of times, but uh, Dikembe Mutombo played that first intramural basketball game as if it was game seven of the NBA championship. Um, it was astonishing at every level. He got so frustrated with his teammates that at one point he decided he was going to bring the ball up as the point guard because he just had had it. He had had it with, with the, the rest of his teammates from his dorm. Um, he was so intense and it was so difficult to referee because he's so large, right? He's so massive and he's playing against guys that are minuscule in comparison to him. I remember calling a, an offensive foul on him and he went bananas on me. He runs up to me and he goes, no. Did, did, did you get the finger wag? The, the finger wag? No. And um, I don't think we had the finger wave at that point. No, um, not yet. But, you hadn't developed that. But, but I, I, and then after the game, after the game, he was so, they lost. He was so frustrated. And I think he wanted to show me for some reason. I think he felt like he had disgraced his dorm or something and he wanted to make up for it. He he said he he decided he was going to show me that he could dunk from the foul line. And and I think because the flooring was rubber where we play intramurals as opposed to wood where he was normally used to playing it, you know, in real basketball, he wasn't quite able to do it, but he kept trying over and over and over to dunk from the foul line. And I told anybody that would listen and, and this is going to sound like hyperbole. I told anyone that would listen that that guy was going to be a lottery pick in the NBA. That here he was just based upon an intramural basketball game at Georgetown, where I'm pretty sure they lost the damn game. He was, and the reason I said that was because he was clearly a project, but he had something seven foot two guys never had a motor. He had that Ooh. desire. He had that fire. The biggest problem with seven foot two guys that grow up in America is that they're afraid of their own shadows because they bump into people and, and you know, everyone gets scared. And so they, they and they, and they're probably, they're soft anyway, because they've been treated special their whole life. Dikembe wasn't treated as special his whole life. He grew up in Africa where he was literally, you know, allegedly killing lions to survive. I mean, so so this was this was a guy who grew up in a completely different culture, and I could tell. He, I mean, his free throw form was fantastic. He uh, he had a sense of where the ball was going to go on rebounds. He was able to score the basket from close in. I'm like, that is a lottery pick in the NBA, and everyone thought I was crazy, uh, but it turns out uh, I was right. And he's not only not only was he a lottery pick in the NBA, he, he's an, an, a pro basketball Hall of Famer. Uh, which is pretty amazing. Of course, you know, I, I, I will, I will always remember that, that uh, Georgetown basketball in one of my last, I think it was my last year had Alonzo Mourning, the Kimbe Mutombo and John Thompson, all hall of famers. And we lost in the second round of the NCAA basketball. <laughs> so, so, uh, that, that probably has never happened before or since. Well, oh. Yeah. The the Kembe Matumbo, Jerry Sandusky, Sarah Palin, and the the you know uh, 
blocking the path to 9-11. John, you know, John Ziegler is right, people. He's right. Just deal with it. He knows what he's talking about. And again, John, thank you for everything that you do and continue to do. I, I appreciate it beyond words and uh, and grateful you stopping in uh, here to talk with us on all over the place. And folks, don't forget to check John out. Uh, still doing the twice a week episodes or at least once a week with the uh, yeah, twice a week we do with uh, the podcast the death of journalism so make sure you check that out itunes spotify spreaker wherever you find your podcast the death of journalism you heard him folks check it out and we'll be back as always next time on all over the place thanks everybody for stopping in tonight